Hi, I'm Leo Finelli, and you're listening to Generation Change. Meet Jenilyn Fong, a PharmD candidate, journalist, and photographer based in Queens, New York. They have written and advocated within climate justice, Asian American culture, the LGBT plus community, and health for publications like Teen Vogue and Insider. In addition, they have become known for their music journalism. Jenilyn has worked in numerous pharmacy areas, including the New York City Department of Health. Jenilyn's advocacy work has held intersectional justice at its center from the beginning. They helped plan the September 2019 climate strike alongside Greta Thunberg and Aisha Sadiqwa. As they enter the last couple years of pharmacy school, Jenilyn is interested in continuing their environmental advocacy work with a focus on the socio-cultural and environmental factors that impact public health and access to care. We talked about Jenilyn's family history, their climate advocacy, and what they want to accomplish with their photography. So, you are a third-generation Chinese-Korean-American. What is your family like, and what is your family's immigration story? My grandpa was born in Hong Kong, and this is on my dad's side. And he immigrated to San Francisco, California. And my dad was born in San Francisco. So the way that you count generations like varies depending on who you ask. But for most people, they'll consider the immigrating person as first gen my great-grandparents actually moved with my grandpa so it's like it, I could be considered fourth generation Chinese American as well but my dad was born in the United States I was born in San Francisco and then on my Korean side my mom was born in Seoul but she moved when she was like 10 so that's my family's history I guess so you grew up in San Francisco what did you like about San Francisco I actually did not spend my like the entirety of my like youth there. I lived in San Francisco until I was like 12 and then I moved to Phoenix, Arizona. I lived in a suburb of Phoenix. But regarding what I love about San Francisco, I feel very like innately connected to the city. I think because of my family's like contributions to it. My grandpa used to be like not the leader of, but he was a big component of like the Chinese workers union because he had like a lot of manual labor jobs in SF and he spoke Cantonese English and Mandarin like all fluently so he was like kind of a translator he would do a lot of the communicating between like higher ups of like the actual hotel business and then what workers wanted so whenever like I go back I you know sometimes I'll drive by the hotels that he used to work at and then just growing up there, I think like there is a very like childlike vision or understanding of my neighborhood because I left when I was like 12. So I didn't really experience like the hardships of like being a young adult. So I I've spent a lot of summers there. So I don't know what my hometown is like. I think that I have like a love-hate relationship with the city nowadays, especially with like all of the politics and stuff. But I mean... And even aesthetically, San Francisco is like my favorite place to be. We have the beach. We have like Yosemite. That's not that far away, Lake Tahoe. And then the houses themselves, like in my neighborhood, we have a lot of very colorful houses. So 
like I can walk one block and I'll see like all the colors of the rainbow in one go, which I, I really love. Let's drop the pin to where you are now, which is New York City. You moved there to grow as a photographer and artist. What do you like about New York now that it's your home? Oh, I love how multicultural New York City is. I visited New York when I was like a sophomore in high school. So this was like 2017. And I just love the energy and like all the different types of people that were here. And it felt like everybody was in a rush. And I think I've been in a rush my entire life. So when I visited as a tourist, it really clicked. But now that I've been here for four years, I think like New York can be really exhausting. But it's like the people that make New York so different. I think that, you know, there's like a stereotype that we're not nice, but we're kind. So I don't know if you've heard of that thing where if you ask somebody for help, like if your car breaks down in California, people won't stop and help for you or like they'll pretend, but they won't actually. But then in New York, they'll be like, you're so dumb, but they'll help you anyway. So all of my neighbors, like I live in like a rent stabilized building in Queens. So all of my neighbors speak Spanish. And like, I just see that as a very vital part of the community. Like most of the people living here are, you know, working manual labor jobs as well. So they've literally built the community from the ground up and they've seen like my area of Queens change over time. And I've also lived in multiple different areas of New York. I lived in Manhattan for a year or no, longer than a year. And then I've lived in various neighborhoods of Queens. You're a photographer. What is the goal of your photography and what do you strive to show through your photos? I think that my photography style has changed a lot over time. When I first like picked up the camera, my photos were meant to like make everything look really pretty. Like I would oversaturate a lot of the images that I created. But then maybe like starting 2019 and then when I moved here, my photography changed to have a more like photojournalistic view. I don't oversaturate my photos anymore. I actually just enhance them to like how I saw the scene when I was there. So it's supposed, and I also think that this is really common with my photography where I like to contextualize everything. So I, th- I think that's why I don't do a lot of portraits, but I do a lot of like landscape and street photography. So if you like were to look at my website, at, like the Montana photos that I've posted, a lot of that is just like long images with the subject being like very small in the middle. And that's because I think context is super important for all of my photos. Like it, it makes you feel like you're there, but you're not, you're not a part of the scene, you're a bystander. And I've had my friends actually, we, we play this game because I have a lot of friends who are photographers too. And so we put all of our prints down on the table and they were able to recognize which ones are mine based off of the fact that like the tones are not low, but accurate. Like they're not super bright and they're not super dark. Now that I write and I think I work more as a journalist, I think my photography goes more hand in hand with that like realistic perspective that I try to bring forth with all of like my writing. Your Instagram handle is at genuine, which is genuine, but you spell it similar to your name, J-E-N-N-U-I-N-N. I think that's really clever. 
<laughs> is it important to you to be genuine and authentic? Yeah, I think when I was younger. So I made that username so long ago. It was like 2015. I was just trying to create puns because I saw other people did that. At the same time, I I was like, yeah, honesty is so important to me. Like telling the truth, like that has to be like a number one priority. And so that's where the name comes from. And then I spell it incorrectly on purpose with all four ends because I think my name is like ridiculous. Like, I don't know why I have so many ends in my name. Being genuine is still important to me. Like I said, even with my photos and my writing, I always try to... I feel like bring it back down to like reality. Like I'm not oversaturating anything anymore and I'm not expanding photos to be like crazy. Uh, Especially with my concert photography, there's a lot that you can do that can make it more editorial or like glamour, but I choose not to. I choose to document it as it is. You go to school at St. John's University where you're a pharmacy student. What do you talk and learn about in your pharmacy classes? Mm. <laughs> That's like a big question. Uh, so yeah, I've been going to St. John's for four years now. I'm about to enter my fifth year. The first two years are basically undergrad classes. So you're just taking like prerequisites to, it's like basic sciences, like organic chemistry. Gen Chem was like one of the first classes I took there. Uh, I think we had bio and anatomy and stuff like that. We had statistics and then like theology and I even have like a meta philosophy class or metaphysics but then third year was the first year that we started to get really into clinical things so I took immunology and then we took like this class called it was for like introduction to like pharmacist patient care and then I just finished my fourth year which was the hardest year of the program because we do these classes called drugs and diseases which we colloquially call D&D, which can be confusing for people who play Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> but so D&D is split into all the, like, I guess, organ systems. So the first one that we do is skin and connective tissue. And then we do infectious diseases. And then we do cardio and renal one. And then we do cardio renal two, uh, neurology, and then respiratory, which was the last one that I just did. And then for this upcoming semester, I'll be doing uh, GI and endo, and then the reproductive system, and then uh, oncology, which is going to be the hardest one for this semester. And sorry, this is going to be a bit of a rant, but it's pretty intense because we have a lot of like systems to cover. So in one semester, we'll do three of those. And um, each unit is about a month long. So we have to take a midterm and a final for that one class. And we're, it's not just that we're taking D&D. We're also taking like five other classes on top of that. We have like two lab classes and then a sim lab, which is like we're like role playing and pretending to be a pharmacist with actual pharmacists who are pretending to be patients, among like other things like pharmacokinetics. But with D&D, we'd have to take our midterm after the first two weeks, and then we take our final after the next two weeks. So it's all wrapped up in one month. The middle section, so for the first semester that I had D&Ds, we had infectious diseases, and that was about a month and a half long. So it was like three and a half weeks per exam. And then what we go over in that class specifically, it's literally how it's named, drugs and diseases. So we're going to talk about 
pharmacology, medicinal chemistry. So medicinal chemistry is when you look at the structure of the drug and you are identifying different functional groups that are on the drug and that tells you how it will act in the body. So things like fluorine or chlorine will make a big difference in like the lifespan of the drug itself. And then we also just go over like therapeutics. So talking about like guidelines that are recommended by whatever organization. And that's about it for like D&Ds. You're also a student activist and you've planned several historic climate marches in New York City. The last one that I was directly participating in though was quite a while ago. It was in 2019 before the pandemic happened and Greta Thunberg was there. Aisha Sadika who's now like a very, very, very outspoken advocate. She doesn't call herself an activist. I can understand why advocate works better for some people, including myself. Mm -hmm. Is it okay if we talk about your experiences with eco-anxiety? Because I've experienced it too. Oh yeah, of course. Eco-anxiety. Like you're talking about like the stress surrounding like the climate crisis? Yeah, like worried about your future, feeling like you're going to run out of time. Yeah, I I definitely felt that way for, I think like it all started when I read this book called The Sixth Extinction by Elizabeth Colbert. And I read this when I was in high school. So I was like 15 when I read it. And that hugely impacted the way I saw the future. I even like made a presentation about how like humans should stop reproducing because like there's like no point. Like I was like an extreme nihilist in high school, basically. I still feel that way. I kind of wonder to myself, like, why am I even in school if, you know, there's a possibility that like society will collapse and I won't even get to use my knowledge for good. But I also like Aisha has talked about this herself, where when you're an activist, it becomes like your sole responsibility to fix the climate crisis. And that's why she has stayed away from using that term. And I understand that because I think that I I actually just think it's unnecessary that we even have activists in the first place, like specifically like teenagers and child activists. This is not what we should be doing with our time. Like we have governments in place and organizations that are supposed to resolve these issues for us. And I don't think that the climate crisis is supposed to be resolved by young people. Like, of course, we care because we're the ones who have the biggest stake in the future and in our own future. But I just feel like it's very morally wrong that we have like these systems in place that aren't even working. So now we have to take up the reins for no reason. Like, and I think like also when I, you know, go back into that nihilist perspective where nothing matters, I think that's the only way that I can get through like my day-to-day life. Because, you know, being in pharmacy is really, really hard. I don't really have much time to worry about anything but studying. I still feel that eco-anxiety all the time. And lately, I've just been trying to focus on getting my pharmacy degree. And then hopefully using that to better the world. I've also had some anxiety and mental health struggles related to social media. Would you like to elaborate? In 2020, like when the pandemic was happening and like all of our interactions were online, I felt more anxiety on social media. And I just did not post because of it. Like I didn't want to like share things because I was concerned about the way that it would perform or the way that other people would interact with it or even interact with it at all. And 
I still feel this way, but I think I've also matured and I kind of just don't care anymore. Like my page is my page and I'm going to post what I want to post and what's important to me. And I try to minimize the importance of those like likes and comments and whatever. Um, And it also sucks because like specifically with Instagram, because they've switched a lot of their content to reels and their algorithm like promotes that instead of normal photos it makes it very very difficult for photographers and other visual artists to have their work received and like to be seen like I've noticed that among like all of my friends who are in the creative world especially photographers their posts are not doing as well as they did like two or three years ago so it's just something that's hitting all of us and it also goes to show like that stuff doesn't matter like just post what you're proud of and the projects that you feel passionate about. Tell me about some of the writing and or photography projects you've done. One of my biggest journalism projects was the article that I had for Teen Vogue about um, being non-binary. And that was when I interviewed 16 different people in New York City. And I think that this was during a time when that concept of being non-binary was less known. I think that project is like kind of a point of pride for me because I think it really helped like not awaken, but even just suggest the concept of there being something other than the binary to a lot of people because Teen Vogue is more mainstream media than most platforms that I've written on. And then it was just great to really connect with other like queer people in New York City. Unfortunately for the project, a lot of their quotes got cut. So I actually still have their quotes sitting in a document like after I transcribed it in my computer. And I'd love to share those again. I also want to re-interview some of the people who originally were in my project because they were non-binary and now they've like fully transitioned. I think it would be really important to ask them about their experience with gender and then other things that I've worked on with writing and photography and journalism I just went to the Soul Bloom Festival in Sacramento California which is like an R&B festival it's like it's like Coachella but for specifically R&B and uh, I interviewed a lot of different artists this was like the most interviews that I've ever done consecutively so I interviewed seven people in two days the first so Saturday, August 19th, I interviewed Black Party, Mariah the Scientist, who actually went to St. John's as well. And then like for day two, I interviewed Twee and Duran Bernard. Those are just some of the names, for example. But I mean, all of the interviews will be posted eventually. Um, I think like it's interesting, though, because I felt a lot of like imposter syndrome as a journalist because I'm not majoring in journalism. I'm literally a pharmacy student and I'm very much like in the STEM world. And so to have the opportunity to interview these like very like celebrated musicians who have like established themselves within that industry and within that genre of music to actually be able to like have a conversation with them and be presented as press by you know, the festival. I think that that was crazy and made me feel a lot better about like my writing career. It also made me realize like, oh, I can do this. Like, because we didn't get the list of people that we were going to interview until hours before the day started. Like for Saturday, I got my list. Like I I finally opened the email at like 9 a.m. and the festival starts at 12 And then for Sunday, it was this. No, it was actually I got my list sent at 10. 
So I really like, you know, came through and like create all these interview questions on the fly. And I think that definitely boosted my confidence when it comes to journalism itself. So last December, you used your photography as a fundraiser for housing and medical service. I'd love to hear all about that. Yeah, sure. So the organization that I was raising the money for is called Care for the Homeless in New York City. This is something that bothers me about both New York City and San Francisco, and I guess any like major city in the United States, because we don't really have infrastructure built up to protect like people in vulnerable situations. And that's how you become homeless. Like not a lot of people know this, but I didn't have super great relations with my parents when I was growing up. And there were times when I actually did want to run away. But then it was like, what do you do? Like, like I run away and I'm on the street. Like I can't get a job because I'm not old enough or like I don't have like an address, like a home address to put down on my application. And that happens to a lot of people in the United States, whereas in like I, I believe like in China and most other countries, they have something set up. But like there's also that point where you get desensitized to seeing homeless people on the street, especially in New York and SF. Like they'll just be like laying on the ground or in the subway, you know, with like a blanket, sometimes no blanket at all. And then the area that I live around, there's like these benches that, you know, have like the anti-homeless like spikes, basically. But people are still lying on it because they have nowhere else to go. And I cannot give money to every single person that asked me on the street, but I felt like raising money and doing a fundraiser for Care for the Homeless was like a good, or honestly, one of the only and best ways for me to really like contribute to the community because you also don't know what the person will do with the money if they just ask you on the street but with care for the homeless I know that it's going towards medical services I set up like a google forms I put some of my photos from like three different collections I had it based off of like location so New York Montana and then California and uh, I put the photos in there and just sent the Google form out and was like, hey, if you want to buy prints for me, I'm sending all of the, you know, profit directly to care for the homeless. So yeah. And then we ended up, my goal was like 300 or 400. And we did exceed that goal, thankfully. So you're working on your first novel. What's your book about? My first novel, it's about science fiction, Mars. I've been working on it for and not consecutively, but overall two years. But I don't I don't work on it every day because of pharmacy school. I first this was inspired by um, I'm trying to look at my bookshelf right now, but I don't see it. It's the same author who wrote like a long way to wait, hold on, let me look it up. Okay, so the author. Her name is Becky Chambers, and she wrote the book The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, which, you know, it won like a big science fiction award. I don't know which one it is, but it's like pretty, it's like a big deal, I think. And she has three more books in that series, but the one that I loved was like a novella, so it wasn't part of this series. It's called To Be Taught If Fortunate it's a very very short read it's like about 100 pages or maybe even less and it talks about this group of four scientists who have been sent by earth to like investigate a bunch of exoplanets in the universe and the book is not really plot driven it's very just like this is a world that they are in 
and I loved it. I I absolutely fell in love with that book because of the descriptions and the world building, which was just so good. And that inspired me to start writing a book about Mars. And the plot has actually changed. I've let it sit. So I was working on this in 2021, the summer of 2021. And then I took a break. And then just recently, like a few months ago in 2023, I read like my first 10 chapters again. And I was like, wait, I know what I'm going to do with it now. Because the big, big problem was I didn't know where the plot was going in the beginning. In the very beginning, it was it was like the book that inspired it. I was just writing descriptions and stuff about this world. But now I know that it's going to be more of like a heist book set on Mars, like in this. I wouldn't say it's a dystopia, but it does. Oh, uh, like I'm really I really ha- wish I had more time in, in the day so that I could write it all the time because I think that like the stuff that I discuss in the book is super super imperative like there's gonna be like discussions on AI but also like genetic modifications which are so there's this article that came out by Vox about like a month ago or maybe two weeks ago it might yeah maybe around two weeks and it was talking about how scientists at a university I don't know which one I forgot it might be like Michigan or Virginia but they reversed so they were looking at neanderthal dna and then they found uh, like some in the bone marrow and they were going to extract it and then figure out how to rebuild those antibiotics that the people had because you know when you are exposed to a disease you're going to build up your own immunity to it so they were looking at the bone marrow of the neanderthals and they took it and they gave it to ai and AI filled in the gaps of like the missing genome, et cetera. And then they got an antibiotic from this, which was so crazy. And so the basis of my book is like we find these like extraterrestrial beings like in Mars, like because Mars. OK, now I'm like really going on a rant, but um, like there is a theory that we actually come from Mars. Like there's a theory that you, when Mars did have oceans and lakes and stuff which are now like dried up slash ice Uh, when they when that did exist before there there were like multicellular organisms in it and then there's this theory that it came from mars and was transported to earth through like like meteorites or you know like pieces of mars coming off and hitting earth that's like a theory it's not well known but it is actually like on nasa it's not like something that I just made up. Like it's something that's real. And so I that's kind of what the book is grounded in. It's also, I think like philosophically, it's like in theory a return to home. And like, what does that mean? Because you now you're like a like Terran DNA, but this is like theoretically where you came from. And so the book is just like about um, paleontologists at this university in a city called, I'm calling it Vermilion, which is like a shade of red. So, and then there's like all these like different enclaves related to like politics today. So we have like representation of like the United States space program and then like Russia and like, I have like all of like the map lined up for Mars, but the sole focus is like paleontologists who are trying to find like the extraterrestrial creatures that we might have come from. They're supposed to look like us, which, like, in reality, that wouldn't happen because we know how evolution works. Well, I mean, they could be there, but it's extremely, extremely unlikely. 
but they find these things they dig them up and then there's like a heist so people try to steal it there's gonna be like murder and stuff that's okay yeah well i'm excited to read it when it comes out (laughs) it was so nice talking to you today jenna lynn yeah of course thank you so much for having me though i really appreciate it thank you bye bye have a great rest of your night i will I found Jenilyn to be as raw, unfiltered, and authentic as their photos. I thought what Jenilyn said about their photojournalism at the Soul Bloom Festival was really thought-provoking. They felt a lot of imposter syndrome wearing a press pass at the festival, showing up as a journalist because it's not their major, they're a pharmacy student. But no one should have to feel that imposter syndrome. No one should have to live in a box or a binary. I also appreciated the opportunity to talk with Jenna Lynn about our experiences with eco-anxiety because eco-anxiety is a pressing issue that I don't think enough people are talking about. As we in Gen Z go day to day, the gloom of our uncertain future looms over us all the while. It's painful. We are struggling. But we are struggling together. You can follow Jenna Lynn on Instagram at Genuine. That's J-E-N-N-U-I-N-N. Generation Change with Leo Finelli is hosted by Leo Finelli, executive produced by Julie Finelli, and edited by Nick and Leo Finelli. Our original music was composed and performed by Leo Finelli. Thank you so much for listening.